and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Sanam Mugavi of MD Anderson Cancer Center, speaks with Dr. Sarah Bean, a GYN, breast, and cytopathologist at Duke Health. We'll hear their conversation about the intersection between women's health and pathology, the new hobbies that Dr. Bean has taken on during the COVID pandemic, and her advice for women in academics. You can find Dr. Lugavi on Twitter at Sanam Lugavi, and Dr. Bean is on Twitter at drsmbean. Now here's your host, Dr. Lugavi. Hi, everyone. Welcome to PathPod. This is Sanam Lugavi. Uh, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Sarah Bean from Duke University here today to speak with us. I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Bean. She is a full professor of pathology at Duke University. She does GYN path, cytopath, and breast pathology. You can find her on Twitter at Dr. S.M. Bean. That's D-R-S-M-B-E-A-N. And follow her for great GYN updates, cytopath updates, and breast updates, and more. We're going to be discussing some pathology as well as some beyond-the-scope issues with Dr. Bean today, and we're excited to hear from her. Sarah, welcome. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Fabulous. So I want to start by asking you, you know, some of the basic questions on how you got into pathology. Was pathology something you always wanted to do? Tell us about your journey to becoming a pathologist. I wish I could say that I was one of those people who had heard about pathology early in my professional career and my professional journey, and that I knew exactly what I wanted to uh, be when I was in undergrad and and in uh, medical school, but I'm not that person. (laughs) I actually came to medical school after having completed um, a BA in biology and a double minor in women's studies and photography in college. And so I was very interested in being able to take care of women as a physician. And when I came to medical school, I thought that I would be in either primary care, hopefully caring primarily for women, or possibly OBGYN. And those interests were maintained for the first two years of my clinical training, which was a classical medical education framework. I got to third year, and my first rotation was psychiatry, which was also something, interestingly, that I had considered for half a minute. (laughs) I got to psychiatry, and I realized, wow, this is not it. This is is nothing like I imagined. (laughs) Next, I went to internal medicine, which was, you know, a huge test also, because I thought, okay, if, you know, if I enjoy the outpatient setting and possibly the inpatient setting, then you know, this is my, this, this will help me figure out what to do. I did not enjoy it. I, I really didn't like the whole, not that I don't like to participate in healthcare in teams, that's not true. I do very much, but just in different kind of teams. I, I don't like to pre-round and then round again and then, you know, follow up with orders and chase tests and order lots of tests. It's just not me. I realized I also didn't um, want to follow patients with chronic problems. That just didn't spark passion in me either. So I was really concerned. Like, I was having a kind of personal crisis. 
<laughs> and I got to surgery and was paired with a surgical oncologist, which was actually perfect in retrospect. And I remember being in the OR the first time with him, we spent hours and hours resecting a segment of, of gut for a colorectal cancer. And when it was finally out, he plunked it in the bowl and said, take that to pathology. And I realized, well, I want to see this patient's tumor. I want to touch it. And I want to know, like, what, what, what does it look like? How big is it? Um, did we get the margins? Do we need to take more? And so I said to, um, to the surgeon, I said, is it okay if I break scrub and go to the wow. pathology lab with the specimen? I'd really like to see what's going on in there. And so I walked in to this just it was almost like this eureka moment where, you know, the lights became very bright and yeah. I just felt at home all of a sudden. And I was like, I think I found it. Were you at all familiar with the concept of, let's say, a frozen section or with what goes on after they take out the tumor? Or was this completely your first time seeing this? This was my first time seeing this. Wow. I, I didn't realize it. I mean, I'm sure I had heard about it in medical school, but... I think hearing about something and then, you know, seeing it in action and realizing exactly how cool it is, that's, they're two very different things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's the thing about pathology. It's like, it's this dark hole almost where, you know, you know that it exists as a specialty, but you really don't know what pathologists do. I, th I think a lot of people associated with the clinical lab and chemistry and, you know, CBCs and things. I didn't know what pathology did when I was a medical student, what, you know, what truly entails the life of a pathologist. I had no idea. I didn't either. And even after that, I still didn't. So what I did, I was fortunate um, that in our third year of medical school, we were able to have some elective time. And so as soon as I had that experience, I went to the, I guess it would be the registrar's office who, or whoever controls the curriculum. And I asked if I could take a six-week elective in surgical pathology, and they were happy to, you know, to allow me to do that. So I completely changed the rest of my third year. I inserted six weeks of search path in my third year. And during that time, it was really awesome. I, for the first two weeks, I was, I sort of shadowed one of the, I think it was the chief resident that I shadowed. And then for the last four weeks, they put me on the rotation as if I were a PGY1. Wow. And it was the best time ever. I, I absolutely loved it. And so from there, I decided to do a post-sophomore fellowship, which technically, that was what it was called for me, but it was after my third year um, of med school. And that really helped me solidify the deal because my concern was not necessarily that I would love AP. I already realized I loved AP and that I could do that. I just wasn't quite sure about the CP aspects of it. And so I thought, well, I'll do this year. Back in the day, it used to count for um, toward a year of residency training. And so I knew it wouldn't be like a wasted year either way. And that even if I decided not to go into pathology, it still would make me a better physician. 
Absolutely. You bring up a great point. I think what a lot of students don't realize is that even though the majority of programs, at least in the U.S., are APCP combined, once you actually specialize in pathology, you have the opportunity to tailor your practice to your specific interests and needs. But you know, whenever anyone asks me, I, I tell them it's better to at least become boarded in both AP and CP, just to leave those doors open for yourself in case you decide to change in the future. But you know, you can always pick and choose. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree with everything you just said. I advise everyone who, ta- who comes to me and asks me the question of AP, CP or AP only versus CP only, I always suggest just do APCP. It's one extra year. It will make you a better pathologist to understand all of the laboratory practices and the education that you get in both AP and CP are complementary. And especially you as a hematopathologist understand this, that the lines between the two are blurring significantly. So I think it's, it's really important um, to do both. And then to your point about, you know, pathology and it being such a, a pliable career choice, that's one of the things I tell people too is it's, it's a really great career choice because you can come in and create a career that is uniquely you. Absolutely. And the only hindrance is you. You have to understand who you are, what your passions are, where you're going, and why you're going there. And if you know the answers to each of those questions, you can come up with a career that is really fulfilling. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I I love that about pathology. And it's not advertised enough. So that's my mission in life to get this message out and to let people know how amazing of of a career choice it is. So, well, we know we both love pathology, but let's say if you didn't do pathology, what would you have done? Is there any other area in medicine that you think would interest you? Well, as I was sharing with my initial story, um, the answer is probably no. Um, (laughs) I had reached a crisis point in medical school before before I found pathology, and I was seriously thinking about finishing my medical degree and then doing something else. I'm from a family of attorneys. And so I thought, well, I could go to law school and be an MDJD and figure out something in that space. Thank goodness I didn't do that because in retrospect, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I would have gone to law school. But, you know, As a kid, one of the things that I really enjoyed, and of course to this day enjoy, is education. And for as long as I can remember, I played teacher with my stuffed animals and my dollies. A lot of kids, you know, dress them up and play house, not me. No, I had a classroom, we had rows, they had their (laughs) papers and their pencils, and I had my try erase marker board and we would solve problems and I would teach and I would do this for hours on end. Um, So to answer your question, one of the things that I possibly could have done would be teaching, you know, on what level, I don't know. I, I obviously didn't get that far. There are some days where, you know, you have a bad day at the hospital 
or things get stressful, and I've certainly thought to myself, <laughs> you know, I don't have to do this. What what would I do differently? Um, yeah. Things that oh, and I'm also in the process of looking for a side hustle. So um, so this question is also pertinent. I really like interior decorating and so you know I thought well maybe I could learn yeah. that and then also becoming an executive coach or professional coach so those are those are thoughts that I possibly could have done or would have done or might still do who knows yeah I mean that's amazing it's very telling to your appreciation for teaching or coaching is partly why you're so successful in academia it's not like you haven't done that. You just haven't done it in that formal setting. You've been doing that for years now, which actually brings me to my next question, which is a subject that is, especially these days, very near and dear to my heart since I'm applying for promotion this year. <laughs> uh, I think it goes without saying that success in academia is not easy. Um, and especially getting to a full professor level at a school like Duke is definitely not easy. So I'd love to hear your advice about what it takes to be a successful woman physician in a large academic um, center. That's a great question. There's no easy answer. Um, I, I'll share a story with you to start maybe two years into my tenure as faculty here at Duke, I was working a lot. I was on service probably nine to 10 weeks a quarter. The volume was not attenuated, it was back to back. Um, I live 30 miles away, so my commute is, is a total of 60 miles each day, which is about two hours in the car. Wow. It was a lot. I, I was driving home one day, and I looked down, and I saw a big pregnant belly, which was not a surprise, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was intentional. Um, I just started crying, oh. and I realized something got to give. I cannot be an effective mother. At the time I was married, I'm now divorced. I can't be an effective wife. I can't be an effective human do or an effective physician I just couldn't be effective and keep up everything because it was a big unknown you know adding another human to the element is really challenging especially if it's your first because you have no idea what's coming absolutely so I cried my way home that day and I'm not a crier so this was <laughs> unusual <laughs> and I walked in and said to my then husband I said you know something's got to give I can't do this. And, and he just sat and listened and we had a conversation and he said, well, what are your ideas? And I said, well, I, I think I need to step back and go part-time. I felt like that's what was going to make me happy. And so he supported that and I made that decision. I came to work shortly thereafter with some well-formed plans about what does part-time mean what that meant to me was being on service every other week and that when I'm not on service that I don't have to come up to the hospital, that I'm actually off service. And that was a key thing for me because having holdovers is not an easy thing. And especially, you know, 
almost 15 years ago, there wasn't really much telepathology. So it wasn't super easy to clean up your loose ends. Right. So I made that change for myself and for my family. And um, in doing so, I realized that it, it got me a lot of freedom. And what it allowed me to do was to control my schedule more and to develop skills in diagnostic efficiency. And it also helped me to create boundaries between work and my personal life. So that when I'm at work, I work and I work really hard. And when I'm at home, I don't work. Wow, I admire that. That's amazing. So I did that for many years and it was awesome. I had the best time raising my kids. I'm very fortunate that um, my colleagues at Duke were supportive of this work model because I can tell you no one else was doing that. And when I first pitched it, they said, what? What does this mean? And um, so they helped me ask and answer some really important questions to help me to define, you know, what that meant. Interestingly, as time went on, and as my kids got older, I realized that I didn't need all that time at home anymore. And the leadership, departmental leadership changed. And Uh in that change, also the service work models also changed. And so I realized that I had an opportunity to come back full-time and that the new full-time was closer to what I was doing in the very beginning of my career and what I had done as part-time, which was perfect. That's an amazing story. I mean, I think part of it is also being courageous enough to make that decision and also being at an institution that would support that work model. I want to talk about two things that you mentioned that I think are very, very important. One is the the work-life balance and being able to draw that line. This has been something I have struggled with forever, and I struggle with even more now in the COVID era, where basically the the boundaries between work and home have become none because I basically just live at work instead of working at home. I was reading something today in The Economist And they were saying that this COVID situation has revealed basically two personality types for the people that work at home. One is, and you know, I'm sure they're exaggerating to make the story more interesting, but a group of people are the slackers. They don't have their boss watching over them. And so, you know, they're slacking off and they're just enjoying their time. And then the second group are the Stachanovites, which apparently um, is named after a very, very hardworking miner in the Soviet Union, who basically, you know, now work all the time because they're, they feel guilty for not doing enough work and for not being at work enough. And basically, that's kind of like me. I get up and I work, 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 work until I have to go to bed. And then I get up and work and work and work again. So it leaves very little time for me. But I think that that boundary in general is very important, mostly because it's important to avoid fatigue. You can keep up this rapid pace short term. Uh, most people probably in medicine can do it because, you know, everyone's hardworking, everyone's smart. But I think in the longer term, it's very difficult to maintain and to stay as productive as you started out and also have a normal life and, you know, 
keep your sanity. It becomes very, very difficult. So I think it's very important to be courageous enough to do that. And I think it's important for us to see people like you who have been able to do that and be successful and be role models in in their career and in their specialties. So thank you for, for being the person you are, for making that decision and for sharing that story with us. Sure, thank you. I, you know, I'm sure you've heard this before, have possibly have had people tell you, life is a marathon, not a sprint. Yes. And those are words to live by. You know, remember that you're in this for the long haul and that you have to take care of yourself. Not only do you have to take care of your patients, you know, if you're in a relationship, your, your spouse, your partner, significant other, any children that you might have, any furry critters that you might have, <laughs> you also have to take care of yourself. And one of the best ways that you can take care of yourself, I think as a physician, especially as a female physician, is to establish work-life habits that you can actually stick with. One of the things that I realized early in my career was I was coming home. What I would do would, would be that I would dictate my reports and I would wait for the transcriptionist to type my reports. And they were frequently not ready by the time it was time for me to go home. So I would bring the stack of reports home and then verify the reports from home after yeah. the kids were in bed. And so that would be nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. I'm exhausted. And so what I would find is the next day I would receive pages or emails about typographical errors and things that I needed to correct. Right. So I reflected on this and realized that, you know, it's probably not a good practice that I need to change the system so that I can verify the reports during working hours and spend time at home. So I, I made that change. I don't verify reports from home during my after hours anymore. The other thing I was doing was checking email. The older I get and the more experienced I get, email has become the bane of my existence. I, <laughs> yeah. I cannot stay well because there's always some kind of a to-do attached to an email. And the to-do may be simple as a 30-second response, or it may be as complex as, you know, we need your opinion on this paper, or we need you to revise this paper. Yes. And, you know, that's huge. And so what I found is that when I was at home and checking my email, it would stress me out. It would cause me anxiety. I would, be, I would start thinking about that to-do item or whatever you know, the subject of the message was that's in my brain, I would be thinking about it and perseverating on it and not really focusing on my life at home and being able to, you know, enjoy what was in front of me, which was my family or the ability to stare at the paint on the wall if I so choose. So I stopped checking email from home. The only time I ever check email is if it's really important and I'm expecting something to come in, but right. that is highly unusual. So my email rules are this. I check email in the morning when I get to work. I'll check it around lunchtime and then I'll check it one more time at the end of the day and that's yeah. about it. And and what you have to do if you decide to do this is just start communicating with your colleagues. 
you know, I'm, I'm just going to check email periodically throughout the day. Right. If you need me uh, more urgently, I'm available by cell phone. Feel free to call, text, or page me. Sure. Um, and people, people will do that. So all the fellows that I serve as program director for know that from day one. And I just set that example for them. So it, just making those two small changes has been really huge in helping me establish work-life balance. The other thing I do is basically I kind of have these unofficial office hours in my mind because I work from home quite a bit. So I'm working from home. The benefit is that I don't have to commute. And so I ask myself, well, what will you do with that gift of time? Right. You know, and I use it for myself. Am I going to give that to work? No. Why would I give that to work? Because work wouldn't have it otherwise. So right. I put in the time that I would give to work anyway at home and then give myself the extra gift of time. Perhaps that's going outside and going hard on my newfound COVID gem out, you know, <laughs> in my driveway. Right. Or, you know, perhaps it's going for a walk or sleeping in or having an extra cup of coffee or maybe reading the news or communicating with friends on Twitter. But, sure. you know, I'm not giving it to work. Having kids is kind of a, a nice thing in terms of setting limits for end of work day. Unless you have a nanny, in which case you have, um, this rule doesn't work. But if you have your kids and you put them in daycare, you, in general, you have to be to daycare by 6 p.m. Or else they treat you like you're a horrible parent and charge you money for every minute you're late. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so it's a hard stop. Leaving. Yeah, it's a hard stop. And you have to leave early. Like I have to leave work by 4.30 or 4.00. 45 at the very latest if I'm picking up the kids from school or the Y or you know wherever they are and that has helped me to increase my efficiency so when I'm working from home I, I follow that that same rule so right. I have a hard stop I close my office I've created a space in my home that is my home office and so I basically only go in there pretty much if I'm doing some kind of work I think those are all very, very helpful tips. And obviously, uh, people can tailor this to their specific needs. But I think those are very, very valuable pieces of advice. So thank you for sharing that. So now I want to talk a little bit about your, your newly found, I, I understand that it's a newly found hobby, right? The woodwork? Yes. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that. And how did you become interested okay. in that? So one of my hobbies, if you will, is fitness. And pre-COVID, you could find me in the gym two, three, four times a week, depending upon my schedule, doing HIT TRX. And wow. I also like um, indoor rock climbing. So I would either be working out or climbing multiple times a week. That came to a screeching halt with COVID. Yes. The gym was and <laughs> Same for me. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, you know, at first I thought it was going to be temporary. And so I didn't really go nuts about trying to create a gym or anything for myself at home. And then the more this lingered on and the more I watched the data and the curves, I realized, wow, we are in it to win it. Yes. And so I said to my partner, David, you know, 
I'd really like to build a rock wall in the garage so that we could at least keep climbing. He's an engineer. I'm an MD. Obviously, we're smart, both visual, analytical. And so I thought, well, why can't we do right. this? Like, how <laughs> There's no reason we shouldn't <laughs> be able to. Yeah. So um, he said, well, let's start small. Let's build some sawhorses. And I said, that's a great idea. We need to learn how to use the power tools and, you know, get used to doing that and learn some basic safety and some basic carpentry techniques. Yeah. Next, I realized, you know, I really miss having a box to do my box jumps. And um, I do like these weird push-ups where you put, you elevate your feet and then you can get into your shoulders really deep that way. Yeah. Off the box. I haven't been able to do those. I mean, you can do them off the stairs, but it's not, it's not the same, I guess. It doesn't feel the same. Anyway, so, so we decided to build a, um, a plyo box for me which wow. was more difficult than the sawhorses. And then after that, I said, okay, let's make a coffee table. So we did that. We are intimidated by the whole framing aspects of the wall. We're worried that, you know, what happens if we build this heavy wall and it falls down on us? So we are taking a slow measured approach like any good pathologist and engineer would. <laughs> um, we're, we're, currently in the design phase of this. So I think we're kind of back to pushing ourselves with this challenge and we're going to give it a go. And uh, if we need help, we'll, we'll ask for help and get a framer to come. That sounds it. amazing. There's part of me that really wants to be able to say, you know, we did this. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Absolutely. I think one of the, at least, for, for me, one of the greatest joys in life is learning something new. And I think that's partly why I love being at an academic practice setting is because you're continuously learning and you're being challenged. Anything that challenges me, either mentally or learning a craft or doing something physically, it's just very exhilarating. So I can definitely with that. So, you know, I live in Houston. Land is cheap in Houston, so I have a big backyard. One of the things that I, I always very sad about is that I have this big backyard uh, and, you know, I usually plant some flowers at the beginning of spring or, you know, in the summer, but then they would always die because I had no time to tend to them. I, I couldn't take care of them. But this is, I've been in this house for four years now. This is actually the first year I've ever been able to keep these flowers alive because every day when I wake up in the morning before I have my coffee I actually go outside I water them I trim them I take care of them and it's like a newfound hobby for me it really helps me with maintaining my sanity especially now that I'm not leaving the house very much so I think it's great to have you know have a hobby learn something new and I would definitely recommend it for you know the students the residents I mean it's so hard you know residency is really hard and you hardly have any time to spare but it's always good to have a little something in your life that gives you you know joy outside of work I'm going to go circle back to the, the academic stuff a little bit again I think one of the most important things in and having a successful career in anything, but especially in medicine and in academia, is mentorship, right? Having good mentors 
And then also, you know, at your stage and at your level, being a good mentor. So do you have any special stories that you'd like to share in terms of people you have crossed paths with, your mentors or your mentees, uh, people who have inspired you throughout the years? So, of course, I've been fortunate to be the benefactor of numerous mentors along the way. And one thing I've realized is that a lot of these mentoring relationships that I have enjoyed um, as a mentee were often unofficial, or it was just sort of almost like a friendship or something. And it wasn't this formal relationship. And it wasn't until 2014 when I completed a AAMC leadership certificate program that I saw the possibility of what mentoring could be. And for anyone who's interested, I'll put a a shameless plug out for this program. For anyone who's interested in um, educational leadership like me, I highly recommend this program. It's called LEAD, which stands for Leadership Education and Development. And it's a program that is designed to foster leadership skills, specifically in the setting of medical education. So anyone, any of our listeners who are interested in med ed and are thinking about becoming an associate program director or a program director or a dean or some, you know, some kind of a DIO, you know, any of that, this is the program for you. So um, at the time, it was a two-year certificate program. So I completed that uh, program in 2014 to 2016. Um, And then since then, it has become a one-year program and it is offered nationally. I love it. And one of the reasons why, you know, obviously I stayed involved in the program is because I drank the Kool-Aid and it tasted really good. (laughs) And, um, So back to mentoring, Um, it wasn't until this program where I saw what, I saw the true possibility of mentoring. And what the program taught me was sort of educational aspects of mentoring. So they gave us a working definition of, you know, what is mentoring? How is it different from advising and coaching? Do we have to distinguish between the difference? Can mentors do all three of those things? The answer, of course, is yes. Right. Um, But it's, you know, teaching us the importance of understanding when we're mentoring versus advising versus coaching, teaching us about different structures and possibilities for mentoring. My thought had always been, well, it's this one-on-one thing, but the LEAD program sent me mind-blown, actually, thinking about the different possibilities of mentoring They taught me that there are four phases of mentoring. I had no idea that there are four phases of mentoring. So tell us about the four phases phases because I don't know what they are. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So so this program inspired me to develop my own formal mentoring program here for the um, fellows in the Surge Path and Cytopath programs. So what are the four phases of mentoring? Let's see if I can do it from memory. So um, the first is preparation. So preparation is essentially your first meeting, getting to know one another. It's that informal conversation that you have where you find out the story behind the person. 
that's sitting right. with you or the story from the people who are sitting with you. Just kind of developing some human interest, understanding who they are, what sort of life perspectives they have. Putting this background work and laying the foundation is really critical because that might inform you later on when you're encountering, encountering challenges or victories. That's going to inform all of those things. Right. So that's important. So preparation first. Next is negotiation. And uh, this one kind of blew my mind when I learned about <laughs> negotiation. And one of the things that we did in that program was we uh, were assigned lead mentors. You would ask me, you know, does anyone stand out in my mind? Um, yeah. Yes, Dr. Robert Casanova was my lead mentor for two years, and he was outstanding in so many ways, and in part because he walked me through this process and taught me what could be. We talked about well, what do I want to work on? What are my goals? Why do I want to work on this? How is this fulfilling my professional mission and vision and values? No one had ever talked to me like that before. Right. We talked about, well, how are we going to meet? How often are we going to meet? What if something awesome happens? How can I, how can I let you know? Right. Is it okay for me to you are there you know time limits are there hours of the day where I probably shouldn't contact you what are your hot button topics what are the things that really just irk the crap out of you <laughs> and we share that that's a two-way conversation um, and so you you get to know one another on a on a different level and then you also set some ground rules for the relationship for example one of my hot button things is I hate it when people are late. I just can't stand it. Yeah, me too. And so, you know, one of the ground rules that we set, and he was like that too, so was we will always be on time. Or if something comes up, we will be mindful and respectful of the other person's time and say, can we please reschedule? So um, it lets you set, set ground rules. One of the things I did was I created a mentoring agreement that I share with the faculty and fellows in uh, this department. And if anyone is interested, any listener is interested in seeing that, I would be happy to share that with you. Just tweet at me or else you can email me too at sarah, S-A-R-A-H dot bean at duke dot edu. The next phase is facilitating growth. And this is really the meat of the mentoring relationship. And this is where most of the work is done within a mentoring relationship. And this is what is um, familiar to everyone who thinks about mentoring. I think most people who are unaware of the four phases of mentoring just jump right into the third phase, right. do the work, and then something usually happens. So hopefully you're reaching your goals, you publish that paper, you've got your promotion, you, you've done whatever you set out to do. Um, but sometimes um, the mentoring relationship loses momentum. And this four-phase framework gives you a way to check back in with the other person because you have laid the foundation, you have prepared, you have negotiated how the mentoring relationship is going to work. So you can go back to that mentoring agreement and say, you know, I, I've noticed this and I'd like to talk about this if we could. And let, let's just evaluate how things are going and if there's something that we could change to make this mentoring relationship more effective. The other thing I've noticed, too, is that sometimes the relationships just flame out and you just don't meet with It's just not a good match. Anymore. Yeah, and that's fine. 
Yeah. And that is completely normal. Uh, but also sometimes they just flame out because people get busy for whatever reason or right. life happens. And so the fourth phase of mentoring is closure or finding out closure or looking forward, essentially. And this is an opportunity to actually have a conversation about what has been accomplished in the relationship. If you're in a a fellowship program, that's a year-long program. And so it could be that at the end of the year, that's the natural end of this mentoring relationship. Or it could be that you've had such a wonderful experience with your mentor that you decide, you know, gosh, I'd really like to stay in contact with you as a friend. Do you think that would be okay? Um, How will we communicate? Is it okay if I call you on the phone every now and again just to say, hey, but I love the, the fourth phase because it really places importance on the work that has been accomplished in the mentoring relationship, and it provides an opportunity to, to celebrate the work, not only of the mentee, but also of the mentor and their dedication to the mentee's success. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's probably the, you know, I don't want to say the most important because it feels like each of the phases are equally as important, but I think that's probably the most gratifying mm-hmm. uh, phase of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's such an important and, in my opinion, underemphasized topic in, in medicine because a lot of what happens in our professional lives just revolves around this. Some of it by luck and just by pure chance, crossing paths with people. And others, at least in my experience, has been some gravitation towards people that you either identify with or you know that you highly respect and want to become a version of them, your career. I think a lot of the times what happens is even though programs, you know, at least like for us, we have a formal mentorship program at MD Anderson for junior faculty. Mm -hmm. which is very nice. There's a committee, you have designated mentors for each faculty. But I also think apart from that, there is this informal mentorship program where people find the people that they identify with and they just get adopted by, you know, a senior faculty. And I've been extremely, extremely fortunate. I've, you know, crossed paths with amazing people that have gone out of their way and gone above and beyond uh, and have been extremely generous with me with their time and with their expertise and have helped me along the way. And, you know, sometimes I think about it and I can't believe where I started and where I ended up just Mm -hmm. because people, you know, gave me opportunities and they gave me the chance to, to show that I could do something or to take on a responsibility that was otherwise frightening. But I was able to because I knew that I had the support of someone in a position that would be able to help me and support me should I fail in that position. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's just, it's, it's wonderful to be at places where you have that opportunity. But if you don't, nowadays with social media and easy accessibility, it's also good to know that for junior people or for students or residents that are in some of the smaller programs, that they can reach out to people that are maybe not immediately available to them at their institutions. Mm -hmm. But you'd be surprised at how generous people are with their time. I've reached out to people that I 
didn't know at all and mm -hmm. have asked them either scientific questions or career advice. And nine times out of the 10, people are happy to help you and are happy to at least give you some level of advice. And it's, it's just been a tremendous help to me. So I feel like this is probably one of the best uses of social media. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I, I love the point you made about physical aspect of mentoring and, and don't let that hinder you. Yeah. When I first started in academics, I was trying to focus on HPV, P16, and as a resident and fellow, I had done some work on anal rectal cytology. I came to Duke and I finished all that work, published all that work, was very happy, and um, then was starting to think about, well, what's next? And I realized, gosh, I think I want to like switch gears and do medical education. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I came across someone, um, an educator within Duke, who is not in my department. And she's one of those people, like you were just talking about, who, you know, you're like really impressed with. And so, like you just suggested, I went up to her, I introduced myself, and I said, wow, you know, I'd really just like to meet with you and kind of pick your brain. This is where I am. This is what I'm thinking. And I just need some help. And as you said, she was flattered and, you know, she took me under her wing and uh, became my mentor. And so, you know, to your point, look outside of your own situation. It might be looking outside of your department, which was my case. And as my um, circle of educator friends has grown, I have learned to also look outside of Duke. I, I have a network of amazing educator friends here at Duke. But I also have a network of amazing educator friends outside of Duke. Actually, I just tweeted about this yesterday because I, was, I had mentoring on my mind. Right now, I am in um, a three-way co-peer mentoring relationship with, um, with two of the most wonderful people you could ever meet. One of them is a physician in Emory, and the other is an educator associated with USF, but is actually at the UPenn campus in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We make it work, even though we're not physically in the same space. And we meet by, well, before Zoom, we would meet um, by telephone, and then, you know, we started Zooming, which is even better. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole COVID thing has had some positive things too. And oh, yeah. we've, we've, we've become a lot better and more efficient at remote communication, which is really good. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us. I want to ask you one more thing uh, mm -hmm. before I let you go. This is a hot topic these days, uh, but I feel like it's very important to talk about this. And it's a woman in academia. Um, do you feel like it's harder uh, for women to succeed? If so, why do you feel like that? And do you have any specific advice on how to navigate the issues? I do think it's difficult. I'll tell you another anecdote. So early in my career, I, I can't remember how many kids I had at the time, but they were young. I so will, how many do you have, if you don't mind me asking? I have two. Okay. And they are um, soon to be nine and 11. Wow. This was 
at the time in my career when I was on service, nine to 10 weeks per quarter, I was actually on the tenure track at that time. And so I was very aware of the tenure clock. I was struggling. And this is right around the time I decided to go part-time. It was probably just before I decided to go part-time. I'm sure it probably influenced my decision. But I said to a very senior male person, you know, I'm really struggling. I'm on service constantly. I drive 60 miles every day. I'm running a house. I don't have very much help at home from you know, that current partner. And I, I'm struggling to find adequate time to do my academic work. You know, this was also a time in any young pathologist career when your focus should be on the diagnostics and the diagnostics right. take a lot longer when you're first starting. Absolutely. Um, and that's normal, but it's also stressful to have all of that and so I said to the senior male, I said, well, do you have any advice for me? When am I supposed to do this? And the answer was, you can do it on the nights and weekends. I thought, oh, well, he must have a wife at home who cooks for him, who goes to the grocery store, who does the dishes, who does the laundry, who cleans the house, who takes care of the kids, you know, like he was senior at the time, so right. that on issue, uh, who takes care of the kids, who picks them up at school. Those are all of the things that I was doing the moment I left right. the hospital. And so when I was told I could do it at nights and weekends, I was like, well, I don't think it's ever going to happen. That moment that I shared with you earlier where I found myself um, crying, you know, on the way home because I realized there, I can't, I cannot feasibly do all this. Right. And somewhere along the way, I stopped taking care of myself. I, you know, something has to slip. So I wasn't doing the exercise that, you know, I love. I had stopped right. doing that. So I just made some, some difficult choices. I looked at the framework of life that I had in that moment, did the, the homework to understand what are the rules of participation in life at this moment? What are my options? And then I made it work for me. And I also asked myself, what do I want out of this life? It's, it's really interesting because in medicine, especially, we have this very well-planned out path for navigating the professional life. And it is not until your you get a job where that path is not laid out for you anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, and you don't, you don't realize it until you're like, okay, what's next? Oh, wait a sec, I get to pick what's next? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's on me? And it's actually really cool. But part of what happens as a result of this is we develop this survivor mode, which is, okay, yes, med school's hard. Yes, I have to get through these rotations that I don't necessarily – um, enjoy, but I'm learning something and it's going to be, make me a, a, a better physician. And so I'm going to do this. You get to residency. Residency can be hard. It can be challenging. You know, whatever your challenge is, you, you tell yourself, okay, I can get through this. I've got this. You do fellowship. Yeah, there's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> I've got this. And then you yeah. get, you get there and then you're like, okay, now what? Yeah, <laughs> no one taught you true. the skills of how to answer the now what. Right. Uh, 
And so what I did was I realized that that's up to me to answer the now what. And so I had a moment or multiple moments of self-reflection where I asked myself, what do I want out of this life? When I'm gone, what do I want people to think of when they hear my name? And I realized, well, I want my kids to say that I was a good mom. And I want my colleagues to be able to say, wow, you know, she was a really great teacher. She was an outstanding colleague. We could always count on her. She, you know, taught us about mentoring. She worked really hard and tirelessly to bring people up and to develop people. And that she was an outstanding educator. And so once I realized that, I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. I have just outlined my own personal mission. Actually, you know what? I'm going to teach a course about these very things at CAP 21. On oh, how- nice. Anyway, you know, I, I, I did all of this. And I figured all of this out. And what I did was I defined my own set of rules. How I am going to navigate this world as a woman with my own life circumstances, following the rules that are primarily set for men. I found some people that I could be very honest with and, you know, that I trusted, had some pretty serious conversations and developed a strategy and then I stuck to it. And I think that's the best advice I can give for women who are navigating careers is to figure out who you are, what you want out of your life, both personal and professional, then figure out the rules of the current framework that you're in. And, you know, maybe you need to change that framework. You know, maybe it's a job position. Maybe it's stepping back. Maybe it's a practice setting. I don't know. It could be something as minor as a title or a role or a responsibility that you have that is not in alignment. You have to figure all that out and then make sure that everything that you have on your plate aligns with what you want. And if it doesn't align, then that is an opportunity for you to develop someone to succeed you in that role or to gracefully exit if you're not being supported for a um, succession. That's fantastic advice. The, the graceful exit is, is very valuable. Obviously, all of it is. But I think knowing when to stop when something is no longer serving your purpose is a skill. And it's a skill that needs to be taught and that needs to be learned. That's very important. I want to say this because I feel like maybe I have a little bit of a different perspective coming from a different culture. And so, you know, I grew up in Iran and I went to medical school in Iran and I came here in my adulthood. So my outlook on what it is to be a woman in a um, male driven society was completely different. Coming here was obviously a very pleasant change for me, but I've never felt like I've been held back as a woman ever. You know, I've, I've always felt like I've been given every opportunity that a man would have been given. But my experience is probably somewhat skewed, too, because I don't have children. And so I think, you know, the, the major rate limiting factor are the responsibilities at home. Mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit different. But I, I do think that it's still difficult being a woman in a um, male dominant society, even if it is the United States. 
it's important to realize that your number one uh, responsibility is to yourself and to make sure that you make your dreams come true and for you to be true to yourself and make sure that, you know, while you're being the best physician, the best spouse, the best mother, that you're also taking care of yourself too. Yeah, that's really important and very well said because no one will take care of you except you. And I remember my mother teaching me this a long time ago, and I thought, wow, that's really dark. (laughs) But she's right. You know, it, it it is I who wakes up with a plan to do all of the responsibilities, and one of those responsibilities is to keep this body and mind as healthy as it can be so that I can go do the things that I need to do. Self-care, I think, means different things for different people. And it's an opportunity to self-reflect and think about, well, what does that mean to you as an individual? What makes you relax? What makes you happy? What keeps you going? What inspires you? And we've talked about so many different things that you and I enjoy um, for self-care, but um, I'm sure that the people listening probably have other ideas, too, that are just as valid, self-renewing for them. Absolutely. You already mentioned this, but I want to close by asking you, you seem like an amazing mentor, and I think it would be a shame if, you know, more people didn't have access to your mentorship so would you be uh, open to maybe some people looking you up on twitter or emailing you obviously you know we don't want people to be bombarding you with questions and requests but you know once in a while if there's someone that needs your advice can they reach out to you on twitter of course absolutely i love the path twitter family i think hopefully it has come across in my voice as you're listening My personal and professional mission is to develop others through teaching, mentoring, and leadership. And so everything that I do hones in on one of those three aspects of developing people. So, you know, I may not have the bandwidth, depending upon what you ask me, but if I don't have the the bandwidth, I'll be honest with you, and I will help you brainstorm ways to solve any problem that you're working on. That is amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for being our guest today, for sharing your story, for all the valuable advice. I'm sure a lot of people are going to listen to this and benefit from this, and it's going to be really helpful to a lot of our younger colleagues who are either junior faculty or starting out as medical students or as pathology residents. So this is wonderful. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, 
their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.